Hello and welcome to Rooted Together Podcast, the podcast which aims to root you in Christ through His Word together. I am your host, Charles Hegwood, and today we continue our study in Luke chapter 5. This is part 3, where we actually have these three distinct stories, where we have one, the story of Jesus healing the paralytic, the very famous story. We have the calling of Levi or Matthew who is the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, as well as we end with a very strange parable in which Jesus will talk about new cloth on old cloth, new wine and old wineskins, and all of that related to a question about fasting. And we're going to look and work through those kind of strange parables. But first, let's begin with Jesus healing the paralytic. You see, one of the main ideas throughout the rest of this chapter is this. And the main idea of this particular story is that Jesus alone holds the power to forgive sins. And this is, again, a claim that Jesus is making, an indirect claim at deity, Jesus was not a man who was a good teacher who could heal people and was just misunderstood and and people heaped on this godhood to him. Jesus was a man who was God wrapped in human flesh. He really was. And this story goes to show this. Luke is telling this story to show the reader, the listener, that Jesus truly is God in human flesh. So we have it in verse 17, on one of those days, on one of what days we would ask, on one of the days he was teaching and healing. And this big crowd, again, Luke pays attention to the crowd just like Mark does. A big crowd is there. We find out there's these four friends and they have a, a, another friend who's been paralyzed since birth and they carry, they've heard, heard the stories that Jesus can heal any sickness. He can cast out any demon. And so they think, man, we have to get our friend to Jesus. And so they begin to take their friend to Jesus. But lo and behold, they get to the house and there's an issue. They get to the house and so many people have showed up to hear Jesus speak and teach that they cannot get in the house, but not to be deterred. These young men go on top of the house and begin to dig through the roof so they can lower their friend down in front of Jesus. I mean, just imagine you're teaching and the roof begins to fall on you a little bit at a time and you look up and there is lowering down this man on a bed and four heads peering in at you. This is Jesus's view. And it's interesting. We want to lock in on several things in this story. I want to first lock in on this. So, and behold, some men were bringing in, bringing on a bed, a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But here's the problem we talked about. There was no way to bring him in because of the crowd. So they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he, that's Jesus, saw there, that's the friend's faith, he said to the man who was paralyzed, your sins are forgiven you. Well, first observation I want to point out, he sees their faith. And he looks at the man and says, your, your sins are forgiven. There's something to be said about bringing somebody to the feet of Jesus. Now, you cannot, by doing that, have their sins forgiven. 
but there is something about praying for a friend that does not know Jesus. There is something about bringing Jesus to that friend and that friend to Jesus that you cannot get past because they knew these friends knew if we can get him to Jesus, then he will be healed. But it's interesting as Jesus looks at the man who is clearly paralyzed, clearly laying on a bed, clearly needing a physical healing. The first thing he says to this man is not get up and walk, but your sins are forgiven. And that as a reader should stop us and shock us a little bit because we would be expecting Jesus to say, take up your mat and walk, but he doesn't. He says, your sins are forgiven. And it also says he sees their faith and says to the man, your sins are forgiven. Why does Jesus say that? Why not just tell him, get up and walk? Well, one, because there are, as we have found out, if you were to look at verse 17, he, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. There are people there that will become enemies of Jesus very quickly. He knows that they are not going to want to hear what he has to say. And so he says this more, one for the man's benefit for sure, but also because he's wanting to make the point to the Pharisees that he alone has the power to forgive sins. And so even, I would put it this way, ironically, it is the Pharisees who ask the right question. They say, who is this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And I want to point out here, Jesus does not refute that. He does not go, you're right, only God can forgive sins I should not have. He, he does not refute that. In fact, he encourages it and says, you're right, that only God can forgive sins. Absolutely. And because I am God, I have forgiven sins. So I just want you to notice he does not refute their claim. They are asking the right questions, even though it is quite ironic. Who is this is a good question. Who can forgive sins but God alone is a great question. They don't realize they're talking to the Son of God. They're talking to God wrapped in human flesh. And Jesus perceives their thoughts. They're not saying this out loud, but he's understanding this from what they're thinking. And he says, why do you question your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or rise and walk. But he says this in verse 24. This is one of our key verses. But that you may know that the son of man, what he often referred to himself as, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man, I also say to you, rise, pick up your bed, walk, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, and he picked up his bed, and he went home, glorifying God. And amazement spreads to all who are watching and who are listening. Uh, Jesus says, to show you that I have the power over sins, your sins are forgiven, get up and walk. So it's funny, too, that he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? But Jesus says both to the man and both are effective. His sins are forgiven and he may walk and he goes about praising and glorifying God. Meanwhile, the Pharisees, not so happy. We'll find out later. So after this, after this great miracle, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi or Matthew sitting at a tax booth. Now, when you read that, you should know 
Tax collectors were the lowest of the low. They were below prostitutes on the social scale in Jerusalem and in throughout Judea. And that's in part because they were sellouts to the Roman government. Not only did they collect Roman taxes, but they turned around and collect extra taxes on top of that. And, and that was for selfish profit. And Jesus goes to a tax collector. Why in the world would he be going to a tax collector? But it's not only that he goes to the tax collector. He says, follow me. And leaving everything, he, that is Levi, rose and followed him. And as we'll find out in just the next few verses, we find out Levi, who leaves everything, has much to leave. Just like Peter, James, and John, who left fishing business, identity, family, to follow Jesus, Levi will leave a nice house, a nice job, maybe not nice on a social status scale, but it was a nice job because it paid very, very well. And it says, verse 29, and Levi made him, that is Jesus, a great feast because he's a man that had a lot of money. And he went to his house. It was a big house and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. See, Matthew has a big house and a big table. He was a man of means, and Jesus is there with him and all those people. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples of Jesus and his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Notice how tax collectors is separated from sinners because they were actually below sinners on their scale. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners too repentance. Now, I do want to point out, as Jesus is saying that, right, we see the callousness of the Pharisees as to the spiritual need of others, but we also see that Jesus came with a purpose. Again, this is something that Luke has been hammering home, that Jesus came for a reason and a purpose. He's dining with sinners, which is what he came to do. May we never be that calloused. May we see the spiritual need of others. May we see that just as Jesus came with a purpose, we too have a purpose not to hang out just with each other in our churches, but to go to the sinners, to the people that society is often rejected, and we need to proclaim the gospel to them. But I want to point out an often misconception about Jesus's phrase here. As he says, you know, the doctors, uh, the doctor the physician or the doctor, he's there to heal those who are sick, not those who don't need a physician. He's not saying that. And as he's saying, I came to call not to the righteous, but the sinners. He's not saying the Pharisees are righteous. You see, they're actually sinners too in need of repentance. Jesus is not saying, yet you're righteous, so I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to them. No, he's saying, I've come to call everybody to repentance. Those who are walking with God, that's great. And they're going to be calling others to repentance too. But he is not saying that the Pharisees are righteous. And as Jesus is saying this, here we go. They're going to bring up this point too in verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often. So they're switching gears. Uh, Jesus has an answer for them about uh, Jesus eating with sinners. So now they're going to switch gears and say, well, you know, John, his disciples, they, they fast. And our disciples, they also fast. And they offer prayers. And, and so do our disciples. And, and, but yours eat and drink. You see, ours fast, John's fasts. But yours just eat and drink. Here you are at a party. 
eating and drinking with sinners. You're not fasting. Your, your disciples don't fast. And Jesus said to them, and this is kind of that odd section here. Can you make the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. So Jesus here is making an analogy in which he is the bridegroom. His disciples are the guests. And he's saying, you don't, if the bridegroom is present, you eat and you drink. He's saying, I am like the bridegroom. My disciples eat and drink because I am with them. But a day is coming where I will not be with them. And on that day, then they will fast. So it's not, again, so misconceptions. Jesus is not saying fasting isn't important. His disciples are not fasting yet because Jesus is still present with him. And so there's no reason why they would be fasting while Jesus is there. But he says a day is coming where I will not be there and they will fast. So brothers and sisters, we must fast because Jesus alone holds the power to forgive sins. So we fast and we pray to the God who can forgive sins. That's what fasting is all about. It's about not eating or not indulging in something and not simply just doing that to deprive ourselves, but to, in the meantime, as we feel those hunger pangs or if we, as we, whatever you're you're fasting, maybe you're fasting TV, as you feel that urge to watch TV, you go to God in prayer and you pray to the one who can forgive sins. You pray about your lost friends. You pray about whatever it is you're fasting about. And then Jesus continues with these parables. And these parables are, and we talked about this in Mark, because that's where these parables appear as well. And we talked about them because they're somewhat odd. He said, "No no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. That makes sense when you think about it, because if he does, he'll tear the new garment and he'll also tear the old one as well, because as the new one shrinks, it'll pull and tear the seam. And he said in verse 37, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Fun fact, new wine is acidic. And if you put it into old wineskins, it will break the skin And, and then it spills out everywhere. So if he does, new wine will burst the skin and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. As, long as, as well as the wine. Uh, and then he continues on even more. He says, but the new wine must be put into wineskins, fresh wineskins. Verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. And that one is a little different than the way Mark ends it. So I want to look at those real quick. It should be somewhat obvious what he's saying. Put it in context. Jesus has just told a man, your sins are forgiven. Then he immediately walks out. He sees a tax collector. He says, follow me. He does. They follow Matthew to Matthew's house. He has a party with other tax collectors and other sinners. And Jesus and his disciples are eating there. And, and this is a new thing. This is not the way rabbis behave. You stay away from tax collectors. You stay away from what society would say is sinners. You don't get near them. That's not where religious people go. And Jesus, again, is calling those who are sinners back to him. And that is something new. It is different, but you don't put the new on the old. To make sense of the analogy, this is what we're saying. Don't try to fit Jesus into your worldview. Don't try to fit Jesus into your belief system. And I think so many people who... Who, and we'll, we'll kind of end here, who fall away from the faith, fall away from the faith because, not because 
There are reasons to fall away from the faith, not because they've discovered something that they just don't like about Christianity and 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 it's something that Christianity has wrong. It's that they discover something that's always been there and they're trying to fit Jesus and fit their beliefs about Jesus into their old belief system, into their own worldview. And what we must realize is to follow Jesus, we must lay ourselves down. We must come to him humbly. We must go to the one who alone has the power to forgive sins and say, I will follow you. I'm not going to try to fit you into my worldview. I'm going to fit my worldview. Actually, you're not going to, I'm going to, my worldview will be built around you that Jesus becomes the center of and the core of your worldview and everything else is built out. Not Jesus trying to patch on like a, you have a tear and you're trying to fit Jesus onto your worldview. It will not work. It will tear. It will fall apart. Not because Jesus is not God, but because your worldview is faulty and Jesus fits in not to the old system, but he makes everything new. But here's the issue. He's talking to the Pharisees right here especially. And when he talks to the Pharisees, and I hate to say this, we have to look at ourselves here, brothers and sisters. We have to look at ourselves. When Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he is talking to you and to me. Not that we're Pharisees per se, but as the Bible is that mirror, that is what it shows. It shows our hearts. Our hearts are tendency and has a, they have a tendency to say, oh, we don't want to be around the sinners. We don't want to be around those people. And what Jesus is saying is, no, that's the old system. That's like drinking that old wine saying, once I've drunk the old, I don't want the new. But we need to have a desire for the new in this new being Jesus. And we need to destroy our old system and have a new system built around Jesus. And Jesus must be and is the core of that. He is saying, I am something new. You will fit the Old Testament around me, not fit me into it. Now, Jesus is, by the way, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The, where the Pharisees got it wrong, where so many today get it wrong, is they try to build Jesus into their system and not build their system around and founded and grounded on Jesus. So my challenge to you is, do you go to Jesus as the one, the only one who can forgive sins? Do you scoff at people who are far from God, who are far different than you coming to Christ and say, oh, I don't want them at my table? Or are you going to those people like Jesus, like his disciples saying, follow Jesus? And are you carrying them? to the feet of Jesus, the one, the only one who can forgive sins? Are you trying to fit Jesus into your worldview or are you allowing Jesus to remake your worldview? Thank you for joining me in Rooted Together. I look forward to joining you in Luke chapter 6 next time. I'll see you there.